Until the end of the 18th century, China was the most powerful and productive economy in the entire world. Today, China is re-emerging as a leading economic force. But today, the Chinese government and its ruling Communist Party says that China is not only growing economically, but that it is building socialism with Chinese characteristics. Today, we're going to talk about exactly what the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party mean by socialism with Chinese characteristics. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on the Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're talking once again with Dr. Ken Hammond. Dr. Hammond is a professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. He was the founding director of the Confucius Institute at the university. He's an organizer with the peace organization Pivot to Peace. And very importantly, he is also the author of a brand new book, China's Revolution and the Quest for a Socialist Future, which was just released this week. You can find it at 1804books.com. Dr. Hammond, welcome back. Glad to be here, Brian. Well, I'm so happy about this book. It's been a project that you've been working on for some time. I've been working in some ways with you on it. I have the introduction. Eugene Perrier also has a reflection in the book, but you are the author of the principal text here. Let's just talk first about the title. It's China's Revolution, The Quest for a Socialist Future. Why the title? Well, I think that the title tries to make the point that what is going on in China is an ongoing process, that China, under the leadership of the Communist Party for the last 73 years or so, has been working towards the goal of building a socialist society, a socialist economy, and of course, eventually moving towards the ideal of communism. But that this remains a work in, in progress, that there have been ups and downs, there have been changes in policies along the way. The process has gone through a, a considerable, somewhat long and winding road, if you will. But it's very clear at this point in time that under the leadership of Xi Jinping and the broader leadership of the party and the state, that China is very serious about this effort. Whether that will, in the end, be a successful endeavor, I think to some extent remains to be seen. China is charting a new course. It is experimenting. It is advancing on many fronts, but it faces challenges. And I think that what we want to do is try to have a realistic understanding of the project and the objective and the efforts that are being made without simply saying that, that it's a done deal, that the revolution's over and everything is hunky-dory. So it's really 
The book itself is a snapshot in some ways. It has a long historical background, but it also tries to present the situation as we have it now in the 2020s in the hopes that, you know, we'll be able to return to this topic in another 10 or 15 years and see how the story has developed then. Well, the approach in the book is something that I think is important for people who read the book to understand that you and Eugene Perrier, myself who wrote the introduction, we're using a method of historical materialism as we understand historical materialism. In other words, Marxism and the Marxist method to examine China and its evolution before the revolution, during the period of the Revolutionary War, then the first stages of socialism under the leadership of Mao, Chairman Mao. After the passing of Chairman Mao, the ascension of a new leadership, Deng Xiaoping, and the very profound economic changes that took place in China under the, the banner of opening up. And then the many trials and tribulations of this process, including the ascension then of a new leadership, Xi Jinping, who took power, took office 10 years ago, but who has another five years to go now. So his leadership could extend you know, up until 2028. Using historical materialism, we tried to understand China based on an investigation of what is actually happening rather than a preconceived notion whereby we either put China up on a pedestal, idealize China, said China is heaven on earth, we avoided that. And at the same time, unlike some on the left who denounced China, either before the opening up reforms or after the opening up reforms, and some of the people who denounced China's project of opening up to foreign corporations in a private market, they also denounced China when it had a, a command-type economy under Chairman Mao. Maybe it wasn't exactly a command-type economy, but certainly before the opening up, there was just generally animus and hostility towards China from some Marxists, some social Democrats, many social Democrats, and of course, the imperialists and apologists for capitalism. We use this method and you use this method of historical materialism. And using that method, and I'm gonna go over for the audience what the different chapters are because they're really, really instructive. But I wanna start big picture with you socialism with Chinese characteristics. For some people, it sounded like just a slogan, just a camouflage of what China's real attempts were after the death of Mao and the opening up. But you make the case in this book that socialism with Chinese characteristics didn't start in 1978. It started 100 years ago when the communist movement in China began. Let's talk about your view on that. Well, I think that what's important about the concept of socialism with Chinese characteristics, and they also, that phrase with Chinese characteristics gets applied in a number of contexts, is that this is the concrete application of Marxist theory, of Marxist-Leninist experience and practice and theoretical insights. Just as you say, you know, we tried to take a historical materialist approach in putting this book together. I think that when we look at the actual experience, the historical reality of Chinese history, the revolutionary struggle in China, the establishment of the People's Republic, and the events that have unfolded over these last 73 or so years, that 
<laughs> we need, again, as the Chinese say, we need to seek truth from facts. And it isn't a matter, it can't just be a matter that there's this historical theoretical model, an abstraction, a kind of blueprint or template that we just apply to any place around the world. And we say, well, here's how we make the revolution. Here's how socialist development can take place. And if it follows this exact model, then that's good. And if it deviates from this in some way, then that's bad. I think that's not a very productive way to approach, you know, actually existing life and struggle. And I think that that's a very important thing. It's a really substantial thing to try to understand about modern Chinese history, that what we have is an effort to liberate the Chinese people, to have the Chinese people liberate themselves from imperialist exploitation and from exploitation by, you know, economic elites within their own society. China had a long history of its own distinctive version of sort of commercial capitalism. It had a very highly commercialized, monetized commodity production economy for almost a thousand years before Western imperialism arrived in the 19th century, undermined that, forced China to open itself to economic penetration, and really hollowed out that traditional economy. But it didn't disappear. And so that means that when we look at the nature of China, in terms of making revolution, we have to understand it in its own realities. And this is what Mao Zedong was able to do. You know, when the Communist Party is first formed in China, it's under the, the influence of European Marxism. It's under the influence of Communist International based out of Moscow. And, you know, there really was a, a tendency to view China through a, a kind of lens that was really ground, if you will, in European experience. And that's why in the early 20s, there was this effort to build a united front with the nationalists. The nationalists were seen as sort of the national bourgeois party. And it was felt that there was not a sufficient industrial working class base for a separate communist revolution. But what Mao argued, based on his work in Hunan province with farmers unions and things like that, was that understanding the Chinese rural economy as a commercial economy, as an economy in which agricultural labor was exploited for profit, meant that it was possible to conceptualize the peasantry in China as agricultural proletarians. And that's the foundation upon which he argued for a revolutionary struggle. And that eventually led to, of course, the victory of the revolution in 1949. And that sets the stage for China's also very distinctive process of the initial stages of socialist construction, the period of what we call new democracy, where they didn't just simply arbitrarily you know, expropriate all businesses because they knew that there were patriotic capitalists, there were people who were in business, but they were supportive of the effort to build a new China, to free China from imperialist domination. And so it was a, a sort of incremental process through the 50s, both in the industrial and in the agricultural sectors, of trying to advance along a socialist road. And there's a lot of particular points along that path that we can talk about in terms of adapting. The phrase they use is adapting the universal truths of Marxism-Leninism to the particular conditions, the specific material conditions of China. And that's a dialectical process, which is exactly what it should be. But there's been a tendency, as you've suggested, amongst some folks on the left and certainly in more mainstream circles, to have this kind of idealized version 
of a revolution and a socialist path that doesn't necessarily fit the exact conditions that the Chinese people had to work with and that the Communist Party and the leadership had to work with. So when we talk about socialism with Chinese characteristics, that's really what we're talking about. This isn't just something that began with Deng Xiaoping in the 1980s, but it's something that has been integral to the process of revolutionary struggle and socialist development in China right from the start. I want to help our audience also frame this discussion because it's a really important set of debates and controversies within the left. And I think your book really has gone a long way to help clarify it. After the death of Chairman Mao and basically the liquidation of a grouping called the Gang of Four, but that included Mao's wife, not liquidated physically, but they were arrested. There was a big purge. And two years later, Deng Xiaoping who had been a longtime leader of the Communist Party, at sometimes a close colleague and comrade in arms with Mao, and sometimes a political opponent within the Communist Party leadership. He comes to power and then announces the opening up, allowing foreign Western corporations, capitalist corporations to do foreign direct investment, allowing private businesses to grow inside of China, having a hybrid economy, mixed economy, partly a private market, partly a state-run enterprises with a very strong state intervention from the point of view of credit in the banks. So there's this directing hand of the state. But nonetheless, it was, a, it was obviously a change in policy from that that was pursued by the Communist Party during Mao's lifetime. And at that time, or after that time, a great number of people who were pro-Mao, supporters of Mao, very inspired by Mao, inspired, say, by the Cultural Revolution, the attempts to overcome bureaucracy, et cetera, et cetera, they lost all faith in the socialist project in China. They said, well, China is on the road to capitalist restoration or it's already been achieved. It's over. The revolution is dead. The Soviet Union is dying or it was already dead. Now China is dead. I worked on a book called China Revolution, Counter-Revolution that was published in 2008 it was a literary and political project initiated by people inside the Party for Socialism and Liberation. And the argument that we made, which was really not to a wide audience, it was to a limited left audience, is that those people who were counting out the Chinese revolution, insisting that it was dead, that it was a dead letter, and that socialism with Chinese characteristics was just a camouflage for what was in essence capitalist restoration, that they were making a big mistake because the essence of our argument was as long as the Communist Party of China retains state power, it can move this way, it can move that way, it can move to the left, it can move to the right, it can privatize, but it can also unprivatize, it can socialize, it can nationalize. And here we are 15 years later, and your book goes over this in great detail. The Chinese Communist Party has made many moves in one direction or another and adjustments as time goes on. But what's happening under the Xi Jinping leadership is a reaffirmation that the goal is socialism. And thus the title in your book, The Quest, The Quest, The Goal of Socialism, isn't a dead letter. It's very much a part of the thinking, the doctrine, the political orientation, the agitation, the political sort of orientation of the Communist Party. And it's not a charade, it's for real. Very much so. I think that 
I mean, I, you know, I went through those same things, you know, when Mao died and the gang of four were arrested and there were a couple of years of internal conversations, shall we say, within the party in China. And then Deng Xiaoping's emergence and getting launched on the path of reform and opening. And I first moved to China in 1982 when the reforms were really just cranking up and lived there for the next few years, watching things change around me. That was a period where I think many people were, you know, to some extent, legitimately concerned about where China was going, what was going to be the direction. And I think it has taken time to see that uh, that while this was a, a big change and it was a kind of a great adventure, if you will, certainly a great experiment, that it was undertaken with a consciousness and awareness that it was a fraught path, that this was something that wasn't going to be simple. This wasn't just going to be, you know, let's flip a light switch and now we can have socialism. That the process of building a socialist future, building a socialist economy and society was something that was going to require not a few months, not a few years, maybe not even a few decades, but a very long period of time. And I think that when China embarked upon the path of reform and opening, it was understood that there would be contradictions that would be generated by this, that there would be problems of corruption, of inequality. I think that maybe the degree to which environmental issues have been generated might not have been appreciated initially, but certainly they became aware of that and understood that. But the sense was that if this process could be managed with the party and the dedication to socialism with the socialist mission always in mind, always as the guiding power, then it was a risk worth taking. And it was possible that this could be a mechanism for building the economy, for enhancing the livelihoods of the Chinese people, raising material standards of living, you know, longevity, lowering infant mortality, educational opportunity, health care, housing, all of these things, that these could be accomplished. And what we've seen is that that on a very material level, that has been a phenomenally successful endeavor. But it also generated contradictions, as we say, including the emergence of bourgeois elements. You know, there is private capital in China, and there's no question that that private capital seeks to, you know, maximize its own advantage. That's something that has to be managed and kept in the forefront. And that's why the continued leadership of the party is absolutely vital and essential. Because without that, when there's no guiding hand, when there's no guiding force, when there's no you know, overarching commitment to a future of justice and equality and equitable distribution of the fruits of labor to those who produce them, if that vision, if that commitment goes away, then you get capitalist restoration, then you get, you know, taking the capitalist road. But that is not what has happened. And we've, we see that in many, many instances. We see it in the ability of China to navigate its way through financial crises and economic crises that in other countries were devastating for working people. But China, because it has a socialist core and maintains its socialist legality and maintains the leadership of the party, is able to navigate those things. It navigated the global crisis in 2008 to nine. It reoriented some of its economic policies. It had an infrastructure that provided not just safety nets, but you know, real material support for the 20 million or more workers who lost their jobs because of the collapse of consumer demand in the West. So, you know, we see that. We see how China coped with COVID. 
saving, literally saving millions of lives by mobilizing the resources of the state, the party, and the people in a national endeavor to deal with a crisis, which in capitalist economies simply was a source of profit. And in America, you know, over a million people died because of that. So, you know, the reality of China's commitment to socialism has certainly been demonstrated in these recent, you know, 21st century crises. And I think that that's one of the points that we're trying to make in the book, because I think that that, that speaks to what the, the overarching truth of the situation really is. Yeah. One of the things that I'd like to talk to you about is that there is the economic sort of structure of society, how the means of production are organized, how goods are manufactured, or certainly how they're distributed. So there's the economic structure, the economic foundation. And then there's the, the issue of superstructure, and especially even though it includes many elements in superstructure, culture, education, et cetera, government and governance is certainly a key part of it. And so we have different economic structure in China than we do say in the United States or in the Western capitalist countries and a very different form of governance. And I was just thinking, Ken, as I was getting ready to interview you, the big headlines in the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, is that there might be a deadlock between Kevin McCarthy leading the Republicans in the House and the Biden administration over the debt ceiling. Now, the debt ceiling is a completely artificially created metric that the U.S. government has a certain level of debt in order to finance its operations. And so there's a debt ceiling, which has been arbitrarily determined by the government. So the government and both parties have spent weeks and actually a couple months now debating over whether or not to lift the debt ceiling, this arbitrary artificial metric for whether the U.S. government can borrow more. And obviously it will borrow more because otherwise it will, you know, sort of default on all of its obligations and there will be a major economic catastrophe. But days, weeks, months of discussion, and they've accomplished nothing in terms of actually doing something for the country. And then you think about what was it like when, when Trump was president? There was two impeachments, endless investigations, and then when Biden came in, more investigations by the Republicans who are now the party out of office. Meanwhile, no high-speed trains are being built, 70,000 bridges in need of repair. About a million people are going to lose health care coverage because COVID emergency funds are ending now. The Chinese government doesn't have these kind of problems. It would seem to me, even though the U.S. says, we are the great democracy, follow our lead, it's such an embarrassment in terms of a non-functional or dysfunctional government compared to China. You've been in China for a long time. Let's just talk about the difference in the form of governance between these two systems. Well, I think that's, you know, again, that's part of this overall concept of thinking about things with Chinese characteristics, that China's a different place. Modern Chinese civilization is the result of literally thousands of years of development. So when the revolution comes in the 20th century, it isn't like all of a sudden China, modern China, you know, China under the Communist Party, the People's Republic of China is somehow suddenly going to be a replica of Western political thought or Western political institutions, organizations, all that kind of stuff. The revolution in China is made 
in China. It's made by Chinese people, people who have you know lived their lives within a particular cultural matrix, and that we understand as Marxists that that matrix is determined, is shaped by the material realities in which people live. We understand that, you know, this whole, as you say, the relation of base and superstructure. But, you know, we have to understand that in an actual living way. And so, of course, the revolution in China, the revolutionary state, the political system, the thought processes that go on, they are distinctive. They are Chinese. And we can't you know, of course, this is difficult for the American bourgeoisie because they think everybody in the world wants to be Americans and just do what America says. But even for people on the left, it seems that it's very difficult for them to enter into the idea of dealing with China, of trying to understand China and see China in its own terms. And of course, this doesn't just apply to China. This is true with revolutionary struggles and political developments in countries all over the world. Every place needs to be understood and taken seriously within its own parameters, which doesn't, you know, throw out when we talk about the universal truths of Marxism-Leninism. That's not about, as I said before, that's not about a template or a blueprint. That's about a methodology. That's about an analytical approach. That's a way of trying to understand exactly what those specific distinctive conditions are, exactly how the insights of Marxism and of historical materialism can be used to find a path towards this more just and equitable world of socialism and eventually communism. That that's a, that, that's a real life practice that isn't just, you know, sketching something out and, and wiring up a schematic or something like that. So I think that when we think about the Chinese legal system, when we think about the Chinese political system, yes, it's very different. They talk about something they call whole process democracy. Now, there are elections in China. There's elections at the local level, at the municipal level, at the provincial level, national level for things like the National People's Congress. And of course, within the Communist Party, which has around 100 million members, it's as big as many countries in the world. When the National Party Congress takes place, those are elected delegates that have come up through a hierarchical system of sort of nested elections. So we have electoral mechanisms in China, but they don't operate on the sort of cash on the barrel head basis that bourgeois political parties in the West do. And in many ways, they're kind of secondary to the real dynamics of political process in China, which is an always open process of consultation, the solicitation of input, you know, both through the mechanisms of the party, but also through the state, through the media, through things like the internet now. It's absolutely critical. And there's been a lot of discussion actually in party circles recently in China about how absolutely critical it is to stay in touch with the masses, to stay in touch with the people, to be attuned to what their needs are, what their hopes and dreams and desires are. And that's a process that goes on every day. That isn't something where people walk into a, a polling booth once every couple of years and pull a lever or make an X on a piece of paper or whatever. You know, this is something that involves people in their political lives on a daily basis, really. There's challenges for that in China. One of the great modern Chinese thinkers, a man named Wang Hui, wrote a book a few years ago called Depoliticized Politics, in which he lays out the case that for many people in China, they're very happy with the way things are going. They're very satisfied with their lives. They kind of want to get along with their own, you know, day-to-day -day activities. 
and you know, there's been kind of a, for many people, there's a certain level of political disengagement. I think one of the things that's been very inspiring under Xi Jinping is the effort to encourage re-engagement, to get more people involved. But that's, you know, that that's a broad and ongoing challenge that China faces. But when we think about, again, when we think about politics, we think about political life, we think about democracy in China, we can't just look at it and say, well, they don't have a two-party system and elections that take place every two, four, six years, so it can't really be democracy. That's just ludicrous. You know, we need, again, to take China seriously as its own place with its own history and its own, you know, contemporary realities. Every revolution faces the danger of counter-revolution. It's a given. That's always been true, not just with socialist revolutions, but the French Revolution, Revolutions everywhere, it's always a tussle, a struggle, and it goes on and on between revolution and counter-revolution. And you can, as historical materialists, find and identify the different social and political forces in society who are pro-revolution and those that are pro-counter-revolution. So this struggle is not going away. It's not gonna go away tomorrow. It's not gonna go away next year. It's gonna keep going. And there are forces of counter-revolution globally, and I mean in particular U.S. imperialism and Western imperialism, which is promoting counter-revolution, and they're promoting what they call regime change. But it's really, in the case of China, it would be counter-revolution to get rid of the rule of the Communist Party of China. Now, one of the chapters in your book and again, the book is entitled China's Revolution and the Quest for a Socialist Future. People can buy it at 1804books.com, 1804books.com. You can order it. And you're going to be on a nationwide speaking tour starting, I know you'll be speaking in New York on July 1st, talking about the book. So I'm sure people will be eager to come and meet you and, you know, have their book signed, but also participate in discussions. But one of the things that we could see when it comes to the socialist project is that the Soviet Union, which was the first socialist state and used really far different methods than what the Chinese government employed after 1978, after the opening up, the Soviet government was overthrown in, by counter-revolution. It started in the mid-1980s. It ended in 1991 with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And the repercussions for the people in Russia and Ukraine the Baltics, the Caucasus, the Southern Asian republics, and the people of the world has been so profound. The last 30 years has been shaped by counter-revolution. So when we're talking about revolution and counter-revolution, the stakes are big, the stakes are huge. And one of the chapters in your book is entitled Building a New China and the Struggle Between Two Lines, 1949-1975. Now, that is the struggle that was led at times by Mao Zedong, the chairman and really leading figure of the Communist Party and of the Chinese Revolution, and the leadership that took over later, in particular, Deng Xiaoping. There's two-line struggle. Both sides, and I really want to emphasize this, both sides feared counter-revolution. Both sides recognized that economic development was a key for China because it had to overcome the legacy of the century of humiliation, imperialist penetration, and the attendant poverty. So both sides agreed on the goals. The question was how to get there. And I think that Mao 
feared that by opening up, by letting a bourgeoisie grow in China or integrating China into the world economy, the danger of counter-revolution would also grow. And Deng Xiaoping's leadership didn't negate the danger of counter-revolution, but made the argument that the gamble was worth it because by integrating China into the world economy, China would get access to all of those Western technology, science, learning. In return, China would give the Western capitalists a very big market, a labor market and a commodity market. And that the Chinese Communist Party was strong enough to be able to manage this sort of walking on this tightrope. I want to make this point because I think some of the communists, some of the Marxists, some of the socialists who are either pro-Mao or pro-Deng make the other side sort of caricature and stereotype the other side's argument. Like Mao was like an adventurist and a populist who, who didn't care about increasing the means of production, who didn't, he only cared about mobilizing the masses and he only cared about socialist consciousness. He didn't care about economic progress. And Deng Xiaoping, from the other side, people are caricaturing Deng Xiaoping as all Deng Xiaoping wants people to do is get rich. He doesn't give a damn about socialism. And Chinese socialism or socialism with Chinese characteristics is just basically a mirage. So your book makes the point that the two-line struggle, which is real, about real issues and how to deal with the problem of counter-revolution, which can come from bourgeois forces, but it can also come from poverty that's not alleviated, that this two-line struggle was a normal struggle, but the goals of both sides were basically the same. Well, I think that that's an important insight that what happens after the death of Chairman Mao and with the ascension of Deng Xiaoping, it's not the abandonment of the quest for a socialist future, if you will, but it's in some ways it's a recommitment because you know, during those first 30 years after liberation in 1949, China achieved great things. They made tremendous progress economically. You know, the average growth rate for the economy over those years was, was modest, but steady, you know, maybe three percent a year. And, you know, a lot of infrastructure was built. A lot of heavy industry was developed because China in 1949 was starting from a very low, you know, level. There had been the war against Japanese imperialism from 1937 on, really from 1931 on. There had been the civil war in the late 1940s, and the situation in China was pretty desperate. You had millions and millions and millions of people who were displaced, who didn't, you know, who were refugees from their homes. You had the destruction of bridges, highways, infrastructure, railroads, all kinds of things. And China was plagued with this incredible inflation. And, you know, the new government faced tremendous challenges and within the first year faced the challenges of American imperialism in the war in Korea. So, you know, this struggle to start the process of socialist development was one that it certainly didn't take place in the most favorable circumstances, to say the least. And so there were challenges, there were conflicts, there was a lot of assistance from the Soviet Union in the 1950s, which was tremendously important and helped to shape that initial orientation towards the development of, of the industrial core of heavy industry, of manufacturing capability. But even after 30 years of that development, in 1976, 77, 78, China was still on a per capita basis, a very poor country. 
there was an egalitarianism of poverty, which was better, you know, than, you know, the extraction of wealth by a tiny elite that had been characteristic of the previous period. But it wasn't yet, these were not the material conditions for the implementation of socialism, because socialism, you know, it's an economy of abundance. It's a situation in which, you know, the people working together produce a sufficient amount of wealth so that it can be equitably distributed and people can live meaningful, productive lives based on the the labor that they perform. And so, Given that level of preparation, given the strong foundation that had been made, I mean, already there had been tremendous achievements in terms of extending life expectancy and raising material standards of living and and all this. The housing space available per capita had grown significantly. You know, many, many things had been accomplished. But Deng Xiaoping and his allies, you know, the, the others in the leadership of the party looked at the situation and said, we can do better, we can do more. We can build on this strong foundation by taking this great step, you know, by, as they say, using the mechanisms of the market to develop the productive capacity of the economy. That's what the reforms are all about. But what's important is that first word, using, using the mechanisms of the market. It doesn't mean abandoning socialism. It doesn't mean abandoning the leadership of the party and the state to the forces of capitalism. It doesn't just, it's not a surrender or an abdication. It says we are going to use these mechanisms to develop the economy so that we can achieve a level of prosperity, which will allow us to implement socialist distribution, you know, And that's going to be a long process and it's going to be, you know, a rocky road sometimes, but that's, that's what we need to do. And again, on a material level, it's very clear that that has been a phenomenally successful process. China today has certainly the second largest, if not the largest economy in the world. It's still small compared to, you know, the United States and some of the European economies on a per capita basis, but that continues to grow. And, you know, as they raise the material standard of living, the lives of people, you know, what is it, 850 million people have been lifted out of poverty, you know, just in the last 10 or 20 years. So it's clear that that project has been in many ways very successful, but it has, as we've talked about and we talk about in the book, it has generated these challenges. And the key is that they understand the challenges and they are dedicated to addressing them. And we see that, again, in poverty alleviation, in the fight against COVID, in the efforts to constrain the behavior of private capital, to, you know, as Xi Jinping says, to remember to attain the original goals of the revolution. You know, never forget the original goals of the revolution. And I think that that puts the struggle between two lines into a different historical perspective. We can see, yes, that's a real struggle. Yes, there were significant concerns, especially on the part of Chairman Mao and his allies about the emergence of bureaucracy and about the distortions that might ensue in the economy. The Cultural Revolution was in many ways an effort to address that very profound concern. And I think that the lessons that were drawn from that have been maintained. This idea, as I talked about a little bit ago, about whole process democracy and the the effort to stay in touch, the effort to have a consultative relationship with the people, that's a legacy of that initial period. It's not a black and white, this was one thing, this is another thing. It's a dialectical process of development that has brought us to the order that we have today. I want to spend a little bit more time 
on some of the sort of the quandaries, the inescapable dilemmas that were facing the Communist Party leadership. And again, there's a caricaturing of Mao Zedong by some on the left who say, unlike Deng Xiaoping, who wanted to develop the economy and thus opened up, Mao was you know, pursuing a sort of a, a socialism based on poverty, you know, equality, socialist consciousness, but very, very poor. No, Mao wanted to overcome poverty too. And the Chinese went, and Mao in particular, the only time he left China was to go to the Soviet Union. He went and met with Stalin. They spent months together right after the revolution. And a friendship treaty was signed between the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China that provided lots of economic assistance, advisors, heavy industry, raw materials, scientific assistance, some of the things you just mentioned. And they were allies. And in some ways, while China was still charting its own path, it was looking to and being advised by the Soviets because they were the first and seemingly successful socialist country. Now, the Soviet government in the 1930s, when the West and the capitalist West was in Great Depression, literally the Great Depression, the Soviet economy was growing very tempestuously, very dynamically. Its growth rates were five, uh, not 5%, but 10%, 15%, 20%. The country had been peasant and rural, suddenly became industrial and urban. And it was able in a short decade from 1930 to 1940, become a major industrial power. It had the same levels of growth in a way that China had later during the opening up period, but different methods. It was a completely publicly owned economy, centralized means of production, centralized economic planning. There was no private market, certainly in the commanding heights of the economy at all. And so many people thought, well, socialism is demonstrating its superiority to capitalism because Soviet growth rates were so high using the method of planned economy and public ownership. So that was considered to be the model. And when Deng Xiaoping did the opening up in 1978 and afterwards, there was an assumption since the Soviet model was the model because the Soviet Union was the first place that there was a socialist government that retain power, that by going to this other method, opening up, letting foreign corporations come in, letting a private capitalist class grow in China, inside of China, that this was the abandonment of socialism. But I think what's important about your book, and it goes into great detail on this, is that the economic terrain, but also the international global political terrain was far different for the Chinese in the 1980s than it was for the Soviets in the early 1930s. In the early 1930s, the Soviet Union was completely embargoed and fascism was on the rise and the Soviet Union was anticipating a world war, a second world war within a decade. Stalin even said, the West, it took them 100 years to develop where they are. We have to catch up in 10 or we will be destroyed. That was actually his prognostication. The Chinese had the opening, the ability, the West was thinking, look, unlike the Soviet Union in the 1930s, we can destroy Chinese socialism by opening up. In other words, China wanted to open up. But the Western imperialists thought, well, if we can do business in China, if we can set up shop in China, 
if we can create a connection to a Chinese capitalist class, it'll just be a matter of time before the Chinese government and communism are overthrown. But one of the great ironies of history is that the Soviet Union is the country that suffered the counter-revolution, where the People's Republic of China is still fighting against the danger of counter-revolution, but has not been toppled by counter-revolution. My point being, strictly adhering to this method or that method as the criteria or metric of what project is correct from a socialist point of view is not a proper methodology, that each situation has to be investigated in its concrete reality. And in that sense, also from the beginning, Chairman Mao and the Communist Party of China has always embrace this idea that you do investigation, that you don't start with preconceived schemes or utopias, and from those utopias and schemes, all else follows. In fact, this is the, the application of the Marxist methodology to China, and I would say it was true for both sides in the two-line struggle. Yes, I think that that's a good way of appreciating the complexity of this path, that you know, there's the dialectic of theory and practice and theory that you may start with a certain theoretical understanding, a certain conceptual analysis, and you formulate actions based upon that. And then, you know, as a result of the feedback you get from those activities, from those efforts, from those policies, then you revise that. I mean, if you if you just think we know everything there is to know and we're going to just go ahead and, and roll this out, and if there's problems along the way, well, we'll just brush them aside. That's not a realistic methodology, you know? So yeah, there's not just one path. There's not just one history. There's not just one culture. There's not just one way of seeking a particular objective, you know, that has to be done in the context and based upon the, the actually existing conditions that you work with. Marx talks about how, I think it's in the 18th Primary, he says, it's true that people make their own history, but not in the conditions of their own choosing. I often, I like to render that as saying they don't make it from scratch. You know, you don't get to just decide this is the way it's going to happen. You have to work with the concrete realities in which you find yourself. And so adapting Marxism, Leninism, adapting both the theoretical insights and the practical experience of the Paris Commune, of the Bolshevik Revolution, of the building of socialism in the Soviet Union. Adapting those lessons doesn't mean just emulating them. It doesn't mean just following them mechanically. It means learning from them, learning what can be utilized, learning what may not be relevant or suitable for your circumstances. I think that's been the great achievement of the Chinese Revolution. And that's why the Chinese Revolution is still here. That's why the quest for a socialist future is still a quest. They're still working on it. It's still on the path. It's still on the agenda. That is the original mission of the revolution that Xi Jinping reminds people needs to be constantly in their sight. So yeah, I think that the multiplicity of material conditions and material circumstances. You know, when Marx writes Capital, he's very clear that he's not talking about something that is universally always going to be the same. He talks about how he's writing from the particular historical experience of the development of capitalism, not just in, in Europe broadly, but particularly in England. And that's different. He was able to see that that was different in France or in Germany or in Italy, you know. And, and so how much more different 
is the revolution going to be when you're talking about historical cultures on the other side of the world that have their own indigenous roots and traditions that shape the language, the consciousness, the, if you will, the sort of cultural or ideological toolkit that you have to work with, you know? So the experience of the Soviet Union, the assistance of the Soviet Union in the 50s, yes, this was absolutely crucial for China. But it wasn't the be-all and the end-all. It wasn't the primary or even certainly not the sole determinant for the path that China would follow. And China, the Chinese leadership, whether it was Mao Zedong or Zhou Enlai or Deng Xiaoping or even Hu Jintao, Jiang Zemin, these guys, you know, we kind of often think of that period as the problematic period because that's the period where China was trying to to gain from this engagement with the global economy. And they, they made significant accommodations to the United States, to Western capitalism, to the global capitalist system. And I understand that that you know, was a period where many people had serious concerns about China and what was going on. But even then, you know, they were following what Deng Xiaoping had argued was, you know, the policy of biding your time and building your capabilities, not abandoning the socialist road, not giving up the struggle, but keeping it low key because you wanted to gain, you wanted to gain access to capital, to technologies, to methods of management and things like that, which would allow, those are the market mechanisms that they wanted to use to develop the productive economy. Once a sufficient start had been made down that path. Once China had been growing double digit for 20 years, material prosperity was increasing, China's technological capabilities, its at-home capabilities were rising. That's when you get Xi Jinping on the scene. And he was able to say, you know, we have to put this agenda right back in the middle. We have to say, this is our mission. This is our work. This is what the party and the state and the people are dedicated to. And we're going to push forward as best we can with this. And as I say, you know, we're, we're not trying to paint this as, as a done deal. We're not trying to say that this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. We're not trying to say that, that there's no problems, no contradictions, no challenges. It is still a work in progress. But I think that our perspective and certainly the perspective that I think we try to set out in the book is that, that it is indeed a work in progress and that progress is being made. It's still still a contentious path, but I think it's a good path to be on. Indeed. Marx, in his short, well, it's a pamphlet now, but it was really a letter to German socialists as they were forming a unified party. It's called Critique of the Gotha Program. Marx identifies that socialism or communism won't come immediately after the socialist revolution, that it will be a protracted process. He says the socialist stage, the early stage, the infant stage of communism. Bourgeois right, meaning bourgeois rights, equal pay for equal work, but people are still different. If you're a single person and you're making $50,000, that's not the same level of income as if you're somebody who has five children. If you don't have any children and you're making $50,000 and somebody else has five children and they're making $50,000, in order to be equal, the person who has five children needs more because their needs are different. And so Marx says communism, the realization of the slogan, from each according to their ability, people do what they can, they work as they can with the skills that they have, but what they receive in return is not according to how much they worked or the kind of work they performed, but what their needs are. And society to reach that level of being able to sort of give people what they need rather than 
evaluate it based on their work, that requires, as you put, a higher level of productive forces. It requires a society of abundance, basically, where the question really is how to rationally and sustainably distribute the goods of society so that people's needs are met and the environment is not ruined. So Marx makes the prediction, the prognosis, the outline, the trajectory that this is a process. And he says from each according to their ability to each according to their need. That's communism. That's when we've reached the communist stage. Xi Jinping, very interestingly, and I want to end with this, he's using different words than Marx and different words than the words Marx used in the critique of the Gotha program. He's not saying to each according to their needs, but he's saying our goal is even by 2050 to achieve the higher level of socialism so that we have what he calls common prosperity. But whatever the words are, it's the same intention. Xi Jinping is reaffirming that the Communist Party, in spite of the fact that it's using or allowing private capitalist markets to exist, which imply, not imply, confirm that there's a level of exploitation between the worker and the boss, that that system is transitional for China, and the goal is this common prosperity, which can only be realized by real equality, which is to each according to their need. I think it's extremely significant that it's the Xi Jinping leadership, not the two leaderships before, or even Deng Xiaoping leadership, that has reaffirmed this, not in a general way, not just as a slogan, but like with a timeline. I think it really demonstrates that the Communist Party of China, under the leadership of Xi Jinping, is pursuing a quest for a socialist future. Well, I certainly agree. And I think that, again, you know, Xi Jinping has brought, he's brought theory back into the forefront. You know, he talks more about Marxism and Leninism. He has encouraged the study of theoretical works and the study, of course, of history. He's really revived, I think, the the intellectual aspects of the process of socialist construction and the heritage of the revolution. I think that there's an interesting note about the language. You know, you mentioned that, you know, Marx talks about it in a particular way in the critique of the Gotha program, and Xi Jinping uses language sometimes that's a little bit different. That's a good example, though, of socialism with Chinese characteristics, because the language that Xi Jinping tends to use these are phrases, this idea of common prosperity, of shared prosperity, these are phrases that draw on traditions of egalitarian ideas and ideals of social justice that have deep roots in Chinese society. Uh, some of this terminology, one of the phrases, a phrase they use to talk about the present, they talk about a moderately prosperous society, that we've achieved a certain level of prosperity. It's not yet enough to move to you know, ideals of socialist or communist distribution, but it's enough to have enhanced people's circumstances. And they talk about that as what in Chinese is called a xiaokang shihui, and that literally translates as a moderately prosperous society. But it's a term that has that goes way back into Chinese intellectual tradition. And there is a long tradition of economic discourse, economic theory, discussion, and questions of how to achieve greater prosperity, greater equality, greater economic justice. We think about the imperial past often in a, in a somewhat simplistic way as a very exploitive society, which it certainly was. But there were always people 
fighting and struggling, you know, in conditions that didn't allow for the emergence of, you know, modern socialist or communist thought, but developed their own ideas, their own hopes and aspirations for greater equity and justice. And I think that it's interesting that this is one, just sort of one particular instance where Xi Jinping draws on Chinese tradition, uses language which makes this goal accessible, familiar to ordinary people, you know, that that people don't have to be steeped in Marxist theory, although it's great if they are, and he certainly encourages that. But for the mass of ordinary people to talk about just common prosperity, the idea that this is something that we're all going to participate in. This is something where all of us who work not on the basis, you know, China had this elaborate and, and very interesting system of work points back in the 50s and the 60s. That was a real effort to implement socialist principles based on the amount of labor you contribute and all that. But this idea of common prosperity goes beyond that and says that we're all going to share equitably based upon our needs in the wealth that we all collectively produce. And I think that that's that's a great vision. And it certainly, I think, indicates very clearly that the quest for a socialist future is an ongoing project. China's revolution and the quest for a socialist future. People can buy this book in different places in New York at the People's Forum. Saturday, July 1st, Ken will be speaking along with Sheila Shao on Saturday, July 1st. If you're in the New York metro area or close enough to get here, please do that. Then there will be a speaking tour in other cities. People can also go to the website, 1804books.com, 1804books.com. 1804, of course, is in recognition of the great Haitian revolution of 1804, but 1804books.com is the publisher of this book. And again, for people who are more interested in a deeper study with your friends or colleagues, coworkers, fellow students, organize a study group around this book, China's Revolution and the Quest for a Socialist Future. It covers the history of China before the revolution, what happened during this, the 20th century when the communist movement was formed, what happened between 1949 and 1978, and then afterwards, it covers the Xi Jinping period. A really important resource for people who care about China and for people who care about social justice. Dr. Ken Hammond, thank you. Glad to have been here. Good conversation, Brian. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.